as we begin this morning, uh, I want to preface this sermon um, by saying that in digging deep into the book of Hebrews this past month, um, I've been challenged again and again by how Jesus exceeds my imagination. And yet again and again, um, the pastor who wrote this text we are going to look at together um, invites our imaginations and our whole persons um, to encounter Jesus. Alistair has mentioned um, that our author is often thought of or referred to as a pastor, uh, the pastor to the Hebrews audience, and I'll probably use that language interchangeably, um, pastor and author. The thing um, that has always struck me about Hebrews um, is that it was written for a group of people, second or so generation believers in Jesus, who were acutely discouraged by where they were situated in the timeline of God's work. Yes, Jesus was who they had cast their lot in with, um, laying hold of his claims about life and God. But his place in history was a couple generations and eyewitnesses in the past now. And so these people were very legitimately asking the question, what do we hold on to? We didn't see Jesus with our own eyes, and we really thought that by now the world would be different um, because of all that God has done. They expected that the work Jesus had done and was doing for God's people would have been completed um, by then. Instead, they were faced, um, increasing, they faced increasing opposition and were increasingly marginalized and diminished uh, as they lived their lives. They were losing their families, their people group, um, who rejected what they had accepted. Um, and they were rapidly losing sight of what they and the world gained by fidelity to Jesus. This is who the pastor of Hebrews has in mind as he or she writes to them. Um, and as Alistair has mentioned, as he's led and guided us through this book, I would venture we today are not all that different. The author is also our pastor, only we're not um, a handful of generations distanced from Jesus' history, but two millennia. And so this pastor's heart-heavy and heartfelt uh, exhortations and encouragement are more pertinent for us than perhaps he or she could have imagined. The big idea that our passage prompts us to explore today is this. Jesus shares with us who he is. So if you'd open your Bibles um, to Hebrews 3, we'll start reading there. If you don't have a Bible with you, it will be on the screen. And if you don't own one, you can always uh, take one of the gray Bibles home with you. So beginning at chapter 3, verse 1, our passage starts like this. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. The therefore at the start of this chapter three um, is a really big because. Uh, the following is true. What is being said is true because of what? What came before this? The end of chapter 2, what Alistair preached on last week, um, was this incredibly beautiful description of how Jesus chooses solidarity with the people of God. He chooses their humanity. He shares with them their humanness, not only affirming that it is good to be human, that it is good to be part of the people of God, but also affirming in solidarity the things we suffer in and with. Since the children, the people of God, share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shares these same things, all the same things. And at the very end of chapter 2, 
We hear that he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become faithful in the service of God and able to help. Jesus must be human to grasp our hand and help. Now, the pastor says, there is another kind of sharing going on. Therefore, because Jesus has done what the pastor wrote about in chapter 2, Jesus is now sharing with us something of his. And that something is a heavenly calling, which is pretty grand language, but essentially, this is a summon from God, the source of all these things being done on behalf of his people, human behalf, on our behalf. And it's a summon to come, to come and be. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling. In order to understand this invitation, the author says we need to consider Jesus, which essentially means to think very carefully, um, to fix our entire attention towards him, to hang on Jesus' every word. The author wants us to take the time to behold Jesus and Jesus alone. Let the peripherals fade and consider these things about him. He is our apostle and high priest. He is faithful. And in order to help us understand how Jesus is faithful, the author tells us he is like Moses. Now, why is the author suddenly comparing Jesus to Moses? Uh, there's nothing strange about reflecting on Moses as a high priest. Uh, one of the things Moses is most remembered for uh, is the fact that he interceded and pleaded for people, for Israel, with God on really significant occasions. And the author is going to get to his discourse on Jesus as also a priest in good time. But for now, I want to focus us on how Jesus is like Moses as an apostle. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers what the sort of strange word apostle means, but it can basically be boiled down to sent one. And there are lots of times in the Old Testament and New um, where God sends people to say really important things. But what Moses and Jesus have in common, just the two of them, is that they were both sent to fetch people, to go get them, and to do something really significant on behalf of God. Most of us probably know um, bits and pieces of the Exodus story, how Israel had become a very large people group, um, but a people who were living in another country, Egypt. And they were part of the machine that Egypt used to build its empire, that machine being slavery. Um, all of their kids were born into this, into slavery. But Moses, by really quite beautiful twists and turns, uh, was set up from birth to be sort of different. Uh, so he grows older, leaves Egypt, but then ends up having this remarkable encounter with God in the wilderness. And God meets him and sends him as an apostle back to Egypt to go and release Israel from this evil machine of slavery. And so if you know the story, you know that there's this great and sort of elaborate rescue that builds and builds and builds. And finally, Israel gets out of there. And it's here at this junction of Moses' story that our author has in mind when he writes to us about Jesus being like Moses. There's a little quote that flags this for us, that last sentence from verse 2, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, uh, is a quote from Numbers. And here's what the author is referring to when he quotes this. After this grand rescue, the people are camped out at this mountain called Sinai, where God begins to make himself known to all of them. But the people are rather disgruntled and disorderly, to put it mildly. And one of their primary complaints is about food. 
They missed the meals they used to eat in Egypt, and they are essentially homesick for slavery. And they rapidly begin to turn on Moses and against the God who's speaking to them through him. But the passage our author quotes from, interestingly enough, isn't talking about the people's rejection of God and Moses, but rather it's two people who are much closer, very close to Moses, who are doubting and challenging him. It's his brother and his sister. Miriam and Aaron see all this, the rebellion, the dissatisfaction and ease, and they decide they've also had it with Moses and his leadership. They begin to question whether or not God actually speaks to Moses at all. It's Moses who's been doing most of the talking with God so far, but suddenly this time, God unexpectedly summons all three of them. He says, all three of you come, Moses, Miriam, and Aaron. And it's basically a very tense family meeting. God reprimands Miriam and Aaron, reminds them that he does speak to all his people, but that Moses is different. That with Moses, he speaks face to face. And God is frankly dismayed that they would turn on their brother like this. God says here about Moses, um, this is where our quote comes from. God says here about Moses, he is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and he beholds the form of the Lord. Now, the house of God in Numbers was another way of saying God's people, and Moses is exceptionally faithful in God's people. He was, without question, the unrivaled receptor of God's self-revelation in the Old Testament, God showing who he is to people. And this story of the rescued people of God and of Miriam and Aaron is one example of man's poor and really uh, feeble response to that revelation. They were quick to suspicion and even rejection, but not so with Moses. Now, with all that in mind, and I realize it's a lot, um, let's go back to our text asking the question, how does this part of Moses' life help us to consider Jesus? This reminder of Miriam and Aaron is really the author's direct, if subtle or gentle, jab at the Hebrews' audience. Because they are not Moses' brothers and sisters. They are Jesus' brothers and sisters. Our author has just said so over and over again in chapter 2. And he longs for them to trust Jesus, to not be like Miriam and Aaron, rejecting the person God speaks through. The Hebrews audience needs to think again, to be reminded that God has spoken uniquely and with finality in and through Jesus. Our author purposely slips this quote into our passage, and I don't want us to miss this. We wonder these things too, or at least I do. Does God really speak, and does he speak to us in Jesus? Does God speak to us in Jesus? Continuing with this comparison of Jesus and Moses, our author writes, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now at the middle part of our text this morning sounds a bit like a riddle. It's because it essentially is. Um, but the gist of it is this. While Moses was rightfully remembered as a hero in the people of God, he was just that, in the people of God. 
At no point was he the source of the rescue or the formation of Israel. No one thought that. Um, those, were, those things were God's doing, the source of all things. What our author has been clear so far has taken the first two chapters to tell us that there is one who, like Moses, saw God's glory, God's self-revelation in making himself known, and lived to tell, but who is himself, that glory, that self-revelation come down off the mountain, God himself, to speak to us clearly, to let us behold his form, to see him face to face. And that face is Jesus's. Counted worthy of more, much, much more glory than Moses. What our author is saying is that as incredible as Moses is because of his faithful response to the things that God spoke to him and through him, the way God talks to us in Jesus is explosively and unimaginably better. It's better than all that Moses could ever have experienced. So it's little wonder that our author exclaims, consider Jesus, give him your full attention, because the longer you gaze, the longer you have to see how stunning he is. And his faithfulness to God and to God's people exceeds even Moses's. Uh, next, we are told specifically how Jesus is better. The author writes, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So the question is then, how exactly is it better to have a son over a household than a servant? Um, it's sort of a very archaic concept for us where we live to think that households were run by a son, by the oldest male. I have a great brother, younger than me, uh, but I would not be impressed if I had to answer to him when he just naturally took over the family's estate, me being part of that estate because I'm a woman. And for some of us, that custom might sound even more alarming. The thought of your brother running your house, meaning 24-hour raves or reckless spending or copious amounts of axe deodorant or what have you. <laughs> it would be the luck of the draw, depending on what kind of brother you have. Some of you oldest males in the room, this would have been a great custom for you. Um, but for our original audience, this wouldn't have been quite as tricky or unfamiliar or offensive uh, language to figure out. Essentially, a servant, even one as important as Moses, was not really a free agent, but was basically part and parcel of the possessions belonging to the householder. So when our pastor says that Jesus is a son and not a servant, he is talking about a whole different kind of household management. The son is not just part of the estate. He is the heir of the estate. He stands for his father, the householder and head of the estate, as a representative, one who embodies his father's intentions and desires and position. And it's not a temporary role. It's permanent and irrevocable. This is a huge statement to make about who Jesus is in and over the people of God, the house of God, here in Hebrews. So we need to ask, what kind of brother, son, and heir is he? And that's answered in the last part of our passage, the biggest statement of all that the author has made. He saves it for right here at the end. Look at how the pastor concludes. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. 
Our author brings us full circle to where we started with that heavenly calling. He is saying that because of Jesus, our brother, we are counted as sons and daughters in God's household. The summon is to come and be included. Jesus is sharing with us who he is in God's house as our identity, our vocation, our reality, and our heritage. Not just as part of the estate, but partners with Christ. We are sons and we are daughters. Daughters who have the rights of sons. This is a house of liberation. All because of who Jesus is. I don't know if you've ever been um, in one of those classes in university where the professor gets up on the first day, uh, the first lecture, and says, look to your left and look to your right, and so you do. And then she or he says, only 80% of the people you see here today will be here at the end of the year, and only half of those people are going to pass this class. I had a class like that um, as a freshman in my first year of university, and the professor, in this case he, uh, scared me so badly that I, I went and dropped the class, and I took it a different year with a different professor. Um, because that kind of pressure was such a source of anxiety um, for me that I, I couldn't perform my role as a student under it without significant emotional turmoil. But that is not what our author is doing here. In fact, the author is doing something really remarkable, the exact opposite, and saying, look to your left and look to your right. 100% of you, every single body, every person in this room, you are invited by Jesus. Each one of you, you are invited to take your place in God's house, a place of honor and dignity in God's home. And if you take your place in that home, Jesus will make you wholly belong. He will treat you as a son and not as a servant. The gatherings of Christians who would have originally heard this book of Hebrews were made up of all different people, incredibly different from each other, um, people from just all over the social strata. This included family members, people from each different class, hired workers, prostitutes, Jewish people, people who weren't Jewish, slaves, freedmen. But what our author is saying about the household of God is that it isn't like anything, like any other household they or we have ever known. Because each person... All of them are being called children. If you were to look to your left or right and the woman or man sitting next to you is a servant or slave in the world's economy, in God's household, she or he is actually a child with significant rights and privileges and an heir to the whole thing, the whole estate. Our author finishes by telling us to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. In the author's world, slaves and servants did not have a right to speak. Boldness was reserved only for free persons. So what the author says here means that our faithful boldness in confessing our hope demonstrates our place of belonging in God's household as children. We are the household if we hold on, if we hold on to believing God. The only question um, left then is why is it good to come to God's house, to come home? Or maybe why is it hard to come home? I don't know about you and your stories, but home is certainly not a universally good thing or experience for everyone. Um, for some of us, maybe it is, and for many of us, it probably isn't. 
If home is a good place in your experience, then Hebrews is pretty exciting because this kind of home, God's household, it exceeds even your best and most tender memories, your funnest traditions, and the warmest, most loving acceptance. But there are some of us who don't know what that's like and in fact know a lot of other ways for home to be. Maybe places of pressure or loneliness or discouragement, places where we never measure up or are consistently disappointed uh, when we look for the things we need and long for. Homes where there is no ever-enduring welcome. Maybe some of you have had someone who felt like home and they walked away from you. If home for you is a place of pain and grief, then Jesus has something in particular to say to you. That in God's house you belong no matter what. He's done what's necessary. And if home for you has been this experience, Jesus has more in common with you than you might at first think. Emily Dickinson puts it this way. When Jesus tells us about his father, we distrust him. When he shows us his home, we turn away. But when he confides to us that he is acquainted with grief, we listen. For that also is an acquaintance of our own. I know it's really hard to trust Jesus when he stands there and wants to usher us in. I know it's so hard to trust him that this household is going to be different. That here I'll be given a place and listened to. But Jesus is patient. And he's come to you as your apostle. And he will stand with you outside for as long as you need him um, to be with you in grief. Because it's not foreign to him. And no one goes unseen here, and no suffering is unknown. This might be the hardest thing for some of us to believe, but he isn't going to walk away. For some others of us, I think a lot of us actually, um, you might just be really weary. Maybe not from bad homes, but just from lack of it. Or maybe you've forgotten what God's household is even like. Or you've lost sight of who you are there. And you just need to come in and rest and be reminded. For others, this concept of knowing God and being with him and his people like this is maybe new or just so foreign. And that's okay. There's time for that too. Um, time for getting to know what is it like to be part of this household? How does God treat us here? There's time for Jesus to show you those things. There's a safe invitation. And there's room to come in and see and take a look. Maybe stay for a while and see what kind of host God is. In the end, for each one of us, being God's house ultimately means trusting Jesus. It means letting go of those other things that we grasp at or cling to, hoping that they will tell us what Jesus has to say. Moses was faithful in the past tense, but our author specifically says that Jesus is faithful in the very present and active tense. Challenge today is the same as it was for the original Hebrews audience. To believe that Jesus is faithfully maintaining his house today, not leaving us to do this on our own. And as the people of God, the challenge is to be who we are. God's house is embodied wherever his people will be who Jesus has made them to be. 
Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. Will you consider? Will you listen to what he has to say? And will you believe him, stick with him, and let him share with you?